Good morning. Great to be with you, and again, happy Father's Day to the dads in the room. If uh, these fathers or mothers would like their kids to go to some age-specific teaching, we offer that now up through fifth grade. Feel free to take them back out to the patio. Totally fine to have them stay in as well. That's your choice. We are um, in Exodus 24, so you can turn with me there, and if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find one. If uh, you are new with us or new to the Scriptures, uh, we believe as Christians that God speaks today through His written Word and that the Holy Spirit uses it to communicate with us. And so our habit as a church on Sundays is to simply work through the next passage of a particular book in the Bible that we might hear God. We happen to be right now in a book called Exodus, the second book in the Bible. It's very, very old. So if you're not a Christian or you're new to the Scriptures, as a young Christian, I want to encourage you not to feel discouraged about what you don't know, but to be encouraged about beginning the process of getting to know God better. There's plenty of time ahead, Lord willing, to continue to learn, and we'd sure love to help you and walk with you. Uh, This is the fifth chapter in a sequence of tightly interconnected uh, events. So it's taken us multiple weeks to get here, so it's kind of hard to remember that. But all these things were happening uh, very closely together. So chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, they're all wonderful in their own right, but their function within the flow of the book is to bring us to today. Chapter 24 is the the peak, the climax, if you will. And that means, so we're gonna be exploring something truly monumental this morning. Uh, Referencing Exodus 24, one biblical scholar I read this week said this, Exodus 24 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament. It lays out the biblical pattern for worship. establishes God's covenant with his people on the basis of blood. It tells us how God gave his law. It shows us how mortal men met their maker and lived to tell about it. But the climax comes at the end when Moses entered into glory. To say that this is one of the most important chapters is a big claim. So what I'd love to do for us is simply read through the entire chapter so we can get a sense of the whole. I encourage you to watch for each of those elements that um, Graham Riken mentioned, and then we'll work our way back through each one. Chapter 24, verse 1. Then he, that's God, he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. One of the really confusing things in this part of Exodus is, is Moses up the mountain or down the mountain? And why does he keep going up and down and up and down? Maybe he was overweight. God was giving him some cardio, but that makes it confusing. And so Basically, Moses is up the mountain right now, and God's still speaking with him. He's telling him what to do after he goes down, and then he comes back up, all right? So, verse 3 is now Moses down, and he's talking to the people. Moses came and told all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood 
and threw it on the people. Can you imagine being there? That's weird. I'm really excited to talk with you about it. And he said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who are Aaron's sons, these would, three of them would be priests, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I've written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Of all the chapters someone familiar with the Bible might say, this one's especially important. You think of Genesis 1 or Genesis 2 or Genesis 3 or Genesis 12. John 3, Luke 24, Romans 1, Ephesians 1, Revelation 24. Those seem like the most important ones. But this one? This one's weird. This one, the scholar's telling us, may be the most important chapter that you haven't spent much time giving any attention to. Why would this one be important? It is downright bizarre, isn't it? An altar, dead animals, splattered blood, God's feet, sapphire stone, a picnic partway up the mountain, the Lord's glory, whatever that is, Moses in a cloud on the mountain for 40 days? What in the world is going on? If we're honest, doesn't this feel a bit more maddening than monumental? Yet there's more here than meets the eye. Let's zoom out for a moment and re remember what the whole story of the scripture is about. And then this will help us. Friends, human beings were created to enjoy a loving relationship with God, to know him, and then to represent him in the world as his image bearers. He made us to be fruitful and multiply, and then to spread little image bearers all over the world. You could think of it like the perfection of the Garden of Eden was then to be spread around the world as more and more image bearers filled the earth to represent the good rule and reign of God. But ever since that first garden, Adam and Eve rejected God's good authority in favor of their own self-rule. And in a moment, everything changed. That image of God didn't go away completely, but it's like a mirror that's been smashed. So you could still see yourself in a broken mirror, but that image is marred. It's no longer what it once was. 
Humanity has been separated from his creator. We've been at enmity not only with God, but also with each other, and unable to do that for which we were created. And so the story of the history of humanity is not that everyone is as bad as they could possibly be. Praise God, he restrains the evil intentions of our hearts. But rather than spread the good rule and reign of God, we've far more often spread chaos and crises and calamity. If you're old enough to understand what I'm saying, you don't need any further explanation because you're well acquainted with this. The effects of our moral rebellion against God and the scars each of us carry because of the sins of others and their effect upon us, these, these are constant companions. So what we need is not a description of, of what things are like. We need a prescription that things might get better. We need a way to know how to get back to relationship with God and each other. And so the question everyone is asking without realizing it is how might someone like me be back with someone like him? Every act of rebellion against God, every sin is ultimately connected to a desire for that, a broken desire, but one in there nonetheless. And so does such a thing exist? Can rebellious people actually be restored to a rightful relationship with God? Well, Exodus 24, admittedly to us today, because of cultural distance, Exodus 24 declares absolutely yes. There is a way to know God, to be with God, to be known by God, and him not crush us, and to be in harmony with each other. This exists, and it exists because God initiated it and provided all the means through which it can be accomplished. That's what Exodus 24 is about. So we could think of this chapter as the accomplishment temporarily of that, and then pointing ahead to the ultimate accomplishment of that in Christ. Would you consider this with me if you're taking notes just under two headings? There's the ratification, the ratification of the covenant that has been building up to this moment, and then the results of it, ratification we'll find in verses one to eight, and then the results of that covenant are in verses nine to 18. So what I'd love to do is just talk with you about those two things. Remember where we've been. Exodus started with God's people in slavery in Egypt. But God got them out. It's easy to think that this book, the book of Exodus, it means named after that after all, is about them being rescued out of Egypt. That's only part of it. Remember, all the way through those early chapters, God kept saying, I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may serve me. What were they talking about? We're talking about this, Exodus 24, worshiping God, being brought into relationship with God at the mountain. God graciously brought him here, and now he's been formally constituting the nation of Israel under his word. And we're about to see that very moment. Relating with God rightly requires a covenant. Covenant. That's not a word we use very often today. It's even less of a concept that we actually keep. But it's critical to understanding God and his scriptures. A covenant is simply a solemn commitment between two parties. When you buy a house, 
you make a covenant. When you buy a car, unless you pay for it with cash, you make a covenant. There's a covenant between you and some bank, and then you're signing, you're ratifying that covenant, and it comes with stipulations. So make your payments, or what? You will come out one day and the car will be gone. That's a, that's a covenant. Covenants are taken with an oath because it's serious. There's usually a, some kind of ceremony around it. And covenants come with promises that must be kept. The best example in modern America is a wedding. When a man and woman stand together and they turn and face each other and they hold hands and they make solemn promises to each other and they end those with till death do us part, they're entering a solemn, holy covenant. Marriage is an enormous blessing and comes with privileges and yet it demands exclusive fidelity. And the cost of breaking that is enormous. I hope you pray for the marriages in our church. Being married is wonderful and it's difficult. Jill's the wonderful part, I'm the difficult part. (laughs) It's difficult because it requires self-denial. And you you have a relationship in which uh, your lack of self-denial constantly gets exposed. In some ways, you can think of Exodus 24 as a blend of a marriage ceremony and a worship gathering. It's this, what we've been doing today, plus a couple committing to each other. Way back in Exodus 19, God reminded his people that he had rescued them and that he wanted to enter covenant with them. He wanted relational commitment with them. And then in chapters 20, 21, 22, 23, the terms for what that covenant would look like were all set out. The relational commitments. And all of these were to be done in response to who God is and what God had done for them in rescuing them out. Think of those chapters as the wedding pledge, as the the marriage vows being made between God and God's people. And then the details of that covenant were were read. Moses read them to the people again. So then the third time they heard them. That's verses three to eight as the covenant's ratified. Now, again, admittedly, the ceremony we find in that paragraph, verses three to eight, is weird. It's bizarre. But remember, the miracle that's taking place is God's providing the way for people to know him, to be locked back in with that for which we were made. I drive a Jeep Wrangler, and it can go a lot of places. But if I try out in the woods to take it in the water, again, the deep water, that's not gonna go well. I tried that in a van once full of youth. That's another story, though. But a really amazing vehicle meant to climb all over things, isn't meant for water. So if it goes into water, it's not gonna be very useful anymore. People apart from God are trying to go in the water. They're, They're living disconnected for that for which they were made. And so of course things are gonna come apart at the seams. This Ceremony, this work of God and the response of his people fixes that. Puts us 
back in the boat, if you will, ready for the water. The creator is bringing his created people back into fellowship with him and into harmony with each other. Those two always go together. You can't have one without the other. I think understanding this ceremony will help us understand God, will help us understand each other, especially will help us understand Jesus. So it's hard, but look at it closely with me. What we're being told in this chapter is that a ratified covenant is the means through which people can have a relationship with God. It's how sinners who've rejected God can be restored to God. So if we just look at it methodically to try to understand it, Moses comes down from the mountain where he's been meeting with God. This is verse three. Then he tells them the contents of Verse chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, all those commands, all those promises made, everything God expects as a result of what he's done for his people. And then the people respond in verse three, all that the words of, all the, the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's a beautiful, right response. We learn here, church, that being in relationship with God requires obedience. But we also see that it doesn't begin with our obedience. It begins with God. A relationship with God is always started by God. He pursues, he rescues, he saves. All that we do is respond with faith. We say we believe you and we will do what you say, but we failed to do so, so forgive us and now we want to pursue it. God does all the action. We simply respond. Friend, if you're not a Christian, you were made to know and obey God. That's what a human being is. God expects us to listen and then respond. Friend, if you want to do and be that for which you were made, you need make no changes to clean yourself up. You simply need to come to God and say, I hear you, I believe, I have failed, would you forgive? And now would you help me to do all that which you have spoken? Now in verse four, Moses then stopped and he, he wrote down all the words that God had said. This is a critical moment, brothers and sisters, for understanding the rest of the scriptures. Church, God has always given his people his word, his written word. It wasn't only passed down orally, right here at the very beginning of Israel's existence as a nation, they had the written word of God. God's word is the authority we don't get to decide what we do. No, instead we listen to what God says and then we follow him because he's right. And then Moses built an altar. That altar is there to represent the presence of the Lord among the people. Those 12 pillars represented the 12 tribes and therefore all the people of Israel gathered together on an altar to worship God. And then it gets really sketchy. Moses offered two kinds of sacrifices with a bunch of helpers. They're called a burnt offering and a peace offering. What in the world is that? Uh, a burnt offering is when an animal would be killed and repentance, prayers for repentance would be involved and then the entire animal would be burned up. Now, for people who can just go to the grocery store and buy as much meat as we want, it, it, it's difficult to understand this concept. This is, this is potentially enough 
meat to eat on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And so this was a costly sacrifice. And the whole thing would be burned up. Why? Well, this was an offering for atonement. Remember that God is holy, people are unholy. That's the fundamental problem of why people can't be in relationship with God unless there's a ratified covenant. And so the, the animal being killed in the Old Testament was a substitute for the sinner. And the whole thing was spent, whole thing burned up, showing that sin is serious to God. And God must burn it all up. As the, Old Te- as the New Testament puts it, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of covenant relationship with God in Exodus 24 is the substitute of the death of that animal. Now what's the peace offering? It's like, what's a peace offering? A peace offering comes after the burnt offering. So the peace offering is where oxen were killed and they served as a celebration of thanks and praise. They celebrated that the burnt offering had worked. God accepted the death of animals instead of the death of people. So the people responsive to God's word are now at peace with God. Friends, all our longings, all our cravings, all our strivings, all our heartache is down at the root, a desire to be known by God, to be in fellowship with God, to be known by Him, to worship Him, to be in fellowship with Him. It's what everybody needs. We yearn for peace with God. And through the death of a substitute, God provides it. And so then they have this peace offering and they celebrate. We have peace with God and therefore we have peace with other people who have peace with God. Christian, aren't you thankful for that? God has given you through Christ vertically peace with him. And because of that peace, look around. You have peace with every other person who has peace with God. Harmony. We don't have to be doing this all the time. We can sit down on the inside and rest in peace because God's made us right with him. God's made us right with each other. Then Moses took this blood, a lot of it had been accumulated and he splattered some on the altar, and then he splattered it across the people. Can I get in you? Yuck, yuck. Here's the deal though. Exodus 24 is telling us the blood of the substitute is necessary to get that peace with God. Why? Well, the life uh, in the Old Testament is often thought of in this way. The life of the animal is in its blood. And so the blood represented that animal's life being taken. And so what did it do as it whacked people on the head and in the face and on the shoulder and on the shirt? and on the leg, that's gross. But what did it do? What did God in that moment, what miracle did he cause to come about? Well, number one, it cleansed them. Cleansed them by consecrating them, dedicating them to the Lord. And number two, it showed the seriousness of the covenant that was being entered into. It it said essentially this, Israel, this is life 
or death. Following God, obeying Him, is life or death. Obey Him, that leads into more and more and more and more and more and more life. Disobey Him leads to more and more and more and more death. You know this. But them being whacked with that blood was cleansing them, consecrating them, and communicating this is serious. I hope your mind is exploding with thoughts of Jesus. Because all of this ultimately prefigures Jesus being the sacrifice. His blood. Metaphorically, of course, being splattered on you and me. Jesus quoted this very passage when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And he looked at his 12 disciples and he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now the incredible thing here is that the same blood that calls us to obey that seriousness that declares this is life and death, that same blood bounds God to forgive. It's amazing. Brothers and sisters, you exist for a relationship with God. How does that work? Well, God speaks, we listen. God gives commands, we respond and believe. That we, and, and then we say we intend to obey. And then the death of the substitute is applied to us. But we have it way better than they did. Jesus put it this way in Hebrews chapter nine. He, that's Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Friends, sin is far more serious than we realize. It cost the life of Christ, the only one who didn't deserve his blood being taken. It's serious. And yet the love of God is far better than we could ever imagine. Because what it took for people to know God is the offended to take on the offense of the offenders and then to draw them back into himself. There is no other religion that makes that claim. Do you realize that? That is unique to Christianity. So that's the ratification of the covenant. That is what God did and how the people responded that they could be drawn in to him. Now, what, what does that result in? Well, before I get there really quickly, don't miss that this is telling us people can have a relationship with God. Friend, if you're here today and you've never responded to the gospel, or maybe you thought you did, but as you look at your life since then, nothing has changed. The news ultimately that this passage points to is that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life in order that he would then die a substitutionary death. And then he rose again a couple days later to demonstrate that God accepted that sacrifice. And so why is there no true church killing animals today in order to fix our broken relationships? Well, because Jesus wasn't the shadow, he's the substance. Jesus, because he was perfect, 
then he represented everyone who would ever accept him. And so as he died, he died once for all. That's what Hebrews is telling us. No more sacrifices ever needed. So friend, if you don't know him, you can respond to this gospel, confessing Jesus to be Lord. Committing yourself to the truth that God's raised him from the dead. Turning from sin and trusting in him. And you too can be re-locked in to peace with God and peace with God's people. This is what we Christians call the gospel. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, why not today? Why not right now? Now what did the ratifications of this covenant result in? That's the second half of the passage, and I'll have to go quicker here. Verses nine to 18 record the precious results, and I've already referred to them. It's especially a relationship with God that's marked by peace, peace. Remember back in chapter 19, maybe like two of us do, I wouldn't be one of them, don't feel bad. Way back in chapter 19, when the preparation for all of this is starting up, God says, don't come up here. Don't even touch the mountain. Because if you touch that mountain, you're gonna die. Why? God's presence is so holy that that which he is with becomes holy. And the result is that the holiness of God is so grand, you'll either be holy and therefore be drawn into relationship with him, or in your unholiness you'll be undone. So God said, don't even touch the mountain. But, but here, 74 people go partway up the mountain and meet with God. Which one is it? Don't touch the mountain or you die, or come on up and have a picnic with me. Which one? Well, it all hinges on, has the blood been applied to you? That's the difference. The 74, this was the 70 elders and Moses and a couple of priests. They came up and they had a picnic with God. Every serious ancient covenant was ratified with and concluded that ratification with a meal. It was a picture of harmony, of community, of fellowship, of being together because the terms of those covenants now bound the people together. So they're near God rejoicing in fellowship and it says they even get a glimpse of him. Now God is spirit, he doesn't have feet, but he can reveal himself in a unique way as he did here in order that we mortals could have a sense of being with God. Now, feet are nasty, but I guess God's must not be. And so they, they see this clear, incredibly blue ground, and then God's feet. And the point is, God was, God was there, but he's still so, so grand that all they can see is the bottoms of his feet and yet they were with him. They were with him and they lived to tell about it. They enjoyed peace with him and peace with each other. Doesn't peace sound good? Gosh, we live in a toxic, hostile, hate-filled time. The church has to be different. And we can be, not because we're better, but because we know how bad we are. Through the grace of God, people can commune with God. That's what we're made for. That's the deepest longing we have. And it's met in Christ. 
Many of you have heard the famous saying by Augustine in the fourth century, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Those 74 had no wrestling, no restlessness. After the meal, God told Moses to come up even further. Moses would go part of the way up and then Moses as mediator and representer of the people would go up into the mountain, into the cloud, into the very glory and presence of God. And the key word in the second half of the chapter is dwelt. You'll see it on verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on the mountain. It means God settled there. He wasn't just passing by. He was picturing for his people, I'm with you. Moses, as the mediator and representative of God's people, was allowed to summit into the very presence of God. And there God's glory dwelt. There for 40 days, 40 nights, Moses met with God. Now sometimes when the Bible uses that language, it means literally 40 days and 40 nights. Other times, it's a Hebraic way, a picture of saying, wow, that was a long time. I don't, I'm not sure which one this is, but either way, he was there with God for more than that day. What were they doing? Well, part of what they were doing is God was giving Moses instructions for something called the tabernacle. I want to tell you more about that in just a moment, but next week, Brandon's going to tell us a lot about it. Church, the results of the inauguration of the covenant is nothing less than being in the presence of God, enjoying Him, worshiping Him, loving Him. Enjoying His presence. Psalm 84 speaks of this powerfully. One of my favorite verses says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tent of wickedness. That's what we're created for. To be in right relationship with God, welcome in his presence, living righteously in him and for him. God's people got that that day because God initiated it, because God provided for it, because God wanted it. That's how he works. These 40 days are a picture of God being known, his glory being savored, and his people enjoying him, and it lasting. All the hikes back up and down the mountain were about getting to this moment. All those treks weren't for cardio. We'll get into much more detail about this later. I'm almost done. But I want you to see the picture here. It's very easy to miss. If you're familiar with the, the tent of meeting or, or the tabernacle or the temple, if you're not, don't stress. Get together with somebody else here. Read through these passages together. Ask them questions. None of us were born knowing about this stuff. We all learn it through the word and each other. But if you're familiar with this, the, the courtyard was where people went to worship. We could call it church. It's where they worshiped God together. And in the middle of that courtyard was where the burnt offerings were offered. In the Old Testament, you may offer an offering for sin, but then on the way home, when you got angry with your child and you sinfully screamed at him, you had to turn around and go back, offer another offering, because the offering only worked for right then. The offering was temporary. It's part of what makes the new covenant so much better. Jesus' death was a death once for all. But there in the middle was that burnt offering, that place where sacrifice was made as the people of God gathered around. 
But then there was this building, the tabernacle, and inside that building was a room called the holy place. Only the priest went in there. And there were a bunch of objects and they represented various things. We'll, again, we'll talk about that next week. But then even further in the back of the building was what's called the Holy of Holies. And this is where God uniquely dwelled among his people in a way that was safe for him to be there and them still remain alive. Now, so courtyard, holy place, most holy place. You got the picture? Okay, now take that and stand it upright and see it as a mountain. That's what Exodus 24 is. The people of God are down at the bottom, congregating. They've had the burnt offering. The priests and the elders have made it into the holy place. The mediator is in the most holy place. That place the high priest would only go once a year. Jesus is there right now, all the time, interceding for you. Exodus 24 is the, the, the tabernacle stood up straight to help us see in a narrative what all the instructions that are about to come are about. They're about how to worship God, how to have church, how to meet with God. Isn't that cool? Now, what's the point of all this? I've been talking a long time. The point is God wants to be with his redeemed in such a way that his holiness lifts them up into them becoming more and more holy in how they live. He wants them to be with him and them be lifted up in his holiness rather than his holiness absolutely crushing them. And the only way that can happen is for God to initiate a covenant. In Christ, God's given us the very best covenant. Because he met all the terms of the covenant with his own death in Jesus Christ. That you, Christian, might once for all be in God's presence. This is hard for us to really feel, I think, because on this side of heaven, it's, it's, it's a spiritual reality that God is with you and in you. And as we gather, he's here with us. But it's not like we can touch Jesus. But he's here nonetheless. He knows that that's hard for us. And he wants us to experience it. So he's given us the Lord's Supper. That in the supper we would have a sense, even as we taste and we hear that little yucky piece of bread being broken. It reminds us of the broken body of Christ. And as we drink the little cup, it reminds us of the shed blood of Jesus. Thankfully, we just swallow a little. We don't splatter it on each other. Although a few of you might do that. God wants us to feel and taste and know that all this is real and that he has saved us and that he's with us. So in a minute, we're gonna enjoy that. But let me close by reading from Hebrews 10. Hear this as the fulfillment of Exodus 24. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter holy places, where, where is that? Well, that, there was the, this curtain that divided the holy place and the most holy place because even the priest would die if they went into the most holy place, into the very presence of God. But what happened when Jesus died? 
That curtain from top to bottom symbolizing God ripping it was torn down. That every Christian is welcome all the way in God's presence all the time. Not on the basis of you or what you do, but because Jesus is there. You're in Jesus, Jesus is in you, and Jesus intercedes. Always welcome. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our heart clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand and pray with me. Father, thank you for a church that would do this kind of work, that would listen to a 50-minute sermon in order to try to understand what we have in Christ. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you would use my incredibly feeble attempt to say what this says, to help every Christian this morning be reminded of the miracle of what they have, peace with God, peace with each other. And to call every non-Christian here to see what they don't have that they might be invited in through the gospel. God, thank you for peace. Peace with you. In Jesus' name, amen.